Welcome to Guys Open. Today on Guys Open, I have a grand guest, a grand guest, David Paulman. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Chris. I've been uh, following your podcast for a little while, actually, so it's uh, kind of an honor to be on. Fantastic. And uh, the best thing happened within the last, I don't know, a couple months. Oh, are we? Are, I, I, there was a little bit of lag there. The best thing that happened with the last couple months is James White decided to decided to come off his high perch and attack you. Fantastic. And so we've getting, been getting a lot of joy out of that. Uh, the the ribbing that James White has been getting for his stooping so low to attack you based on credentialism, which is actually what today's podcast is about. So today. You put on your Facebook um, wall, I'm going to read that real quick. You said, there's no substitute for doing your own research. We are forced to rely on the research of others due to our own limitations, but this is a dependency born of necessity, not an ideal situation. Yeah, like for example, if I'm studying the early church fathers, it might be okay to consult someone who is like a scholar in Augustine and summarizes his work, but... Really, if you really want to understand him, you need to go read those actual references. You need to read 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 the firsthand literature, the firsthand data to try to get an accurate summary. Because not not all the time are people accurate. Not all the time are people uh, meticulous. And a lot of times people are human and, and they could be missing stuff. So so relying on others is somewhat of a necessity. But as you state here that uh, uh, when, when you do that, you inherit whatever flaws and weaknesses are present in their research. There's an ep epistemic, epistemic gap between yourself and the evidence. The only way to close that gap is to be your own scholar. Can you close all the gaps? Unfortunately not. Can you make a concerted effort to close as many as possible? Absolutely. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your spat with James White, and your comment here about being your own researcher all right let's see if i can remember those three requirements so about me yeah no i'm not i'm not a terribly interesting fellow um but i kind of have been in the apologetics world i have a youtube channel called faith because of reason uh, i've been uh involved with the society of evangelical arminians i've been a member there for i think four four to five years at this point uh, so i've you know been involved in the calvinism debate uh, arguing against them as have you uh, yeah, in terms of the James White debate, um, <laughs> uh, it started with a Facebook post that I made basically just saying that I didn't think that Greg Bonson, who's kind of this, he's like a sacred cow in the Calvinist camp. He was this big presuppositional apologist in like the 80s and 90s. And I'm not a fan of presuppositional apologetics. And I just basically said I thought he was overrated, <laughs> as are a lot of people in the Calvinist camp who are just kind of popular because they're, they're good rhetoricians. Like they speak well, like James White, he's a great speaker. Um, the guy has got a skill, but in terms of substance, he doesn't have a lot to offer. And that's just true of so many people in the, um, that are like popular in the Calvinist camp. But that's not to say everyone, like I get that there are serious Calvinist thinkers, but usually they're the more obscure ones that you don't hear about. And really that was the only point I was making in the post was like, just make sure there's substance behind uh whoever it is that you're listening to you know don't don't be taken in by because someone's a good speaker and james white uh kind of well first he took a picture a screenshot of my profile and 
basically insinuated that because I worked at, uh, you know, in retail at a, a clothing store called Dillard's, that that meant that I wasn't entitled to an opinion on this topic. And uh, a lot of people called him out on that. And so then he did a, a longer post later on where basically he said I was too young to have read Greg Boston. <laughs> I couldn't have, even <laughs> if I did read him, I couldn't have understood him. And uh, so, yeah. And then uh, I did a, a book review of uh, his book, The Potter's Freedom with uh, my friend, Will Hess over on the church split. And he's been now responding to that book review. Uh, yeah. a, a three second story. I was debating someone on Gnosticism and they're like, have you ever read any Gnostic texts? I'm like, here, here's a couple of links to YouTube of me just reading straight from the Gnostic texts. <laughs> It was, it was the most glorious thing in the world. But but that reminds me of your thing. You do a book review right after he says, oh, this guy's never even read this. It's like, what? That, and this is how disconnected from reality these people have to be, is that they just have to deny facts about reality to make their worldview fit. It can't be that you have genuine disagreements. You can't genuinely just understand him or genuinely understand Calvinism. No one could genuinely understand Calvinism. It all has to be dismissed out of hand. They they can't know what they're talking about. Yeah, the uh, the idea is like, well, if you understood it, then of course you would agree. So yes, there's there's no room for reasonable disagreement there with uh, people like White, which is unfortunate, but that's the situation. Uh, oh, and it, I don't know if you want me to comment on the post, but just basically the point there that I was making was. Uh, that there's kind of always a problem when you're relying on the research of other people. And I acknowledge we have to do it like we can't master everything. But um, when you're doing that, you know, any problems that are present in another person's research, if you're just accepting their research, then you get those problems as well. And so kind of the only way to close that gap, as I put it, is to actually do the research yourself. And uh, so that was that was the mentality behind that post. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what I've discovered in my time on this earth is that credentialism is just credentialism. It doesn't necessarily represent the quality of, quality of an individual or the depth of their thinking. It, it represents how much time they've spent being institutionalized and passing certain tests. It doesn't even necessarily demand that they grasp the concepts being discussed. People get degrees all the time. And it's just by putting in the effort, like low intelligence individuals. I, I was debating with someone, it was a Calvinist, coincidentally, where I was saying, your ideas are basically Platonism. And they're like, oh, uh, we're philosophers. And, and a Calvinism can't be Platonism because Plato was not a monotheist. I'm like, yeah, Plato was a monotheist. And they're like, no, he wasn't. He talked about the Greek gods here, here, and here. I'm like, Look at those references. I don't see any Plato name. I see there's the Socrates or whatever. And then they go with this. They're freaking out like, oh, he, he was just writing by the name Socrates. And he secretly believed in, in everything Socrates says. In every it's like you guys have no understanding of the Platonic dialogues whatsoever. How the, the subtleties involved in what he's communicating and when he's communicating or, and the, the depth of what he's talking about. You don't understand Paramendes and his discussion about the one or his public lecture on the good where everyone shows up to this lecture where they thought they're going to a lecture on what it means to be good or what good things are, and then they get this uh, treatise on the one, uh, the, 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 you know, the ultimate deity, something like that. They're all confused because that's, that's what he actually believed in, despite sometimes his characters in his text talking about 
various deities. So these people with with a philosophical degree are trying to uh, you know just demean me. Oh, Plato's not a monotheist. Well, Justin Martyr sure thought he was, and Justin Martyr was himself a Platonist. So you're telling me that actual legitimate Platonists who follow Plato, you understand Plato better than these people? Fantastic. Uh, your degree is, is worth so much. I care so much about everything you learned and your contributions to this dialogue. A lot of these people with these degrees, they're not focused. Uh, so their, their studies aren't going to be focused in the particular topics, especially topics that they think they're qualified to discuss. If someone was just only focused on Plato and had a degree in that where that's the, their primary study, I'm going to weigh that person's opinion more than someone with like a general degree where, where they're not forced to deal with the intricacies, the evolving literature, the debates on the, the Plato's corpus. I'm going to trust those people with the focused degrees a little bit more than those general degrees. Yeah, and I, I think it's important, you know, observe that we are not opposed to credentials per se. I mean, credentials are a fine thing to have, but specifically to credentialism, you know, you don't have to have the credentials in order to have a relevant knowledge base. Uh, and that's, I think, especially true in, you know, the case of someone like White, whose own credentials are somewhat suspect because um it, it kills him it eats him up inside uh so he's like i think he's working on like an accredited degree right now and i think it's like all this insecurity all these people saying you got a fake doctorate and so i, I think i think it, it kills him inside and so him attacking you might be might be his own personal insecurities i'm just i'm just gonna speculate just a little bit on that it might be his own insecurities yeah, I, I think it could very well be the case. Um, you know, and again, in, it doesn't mean that White doesn't know what he's talking about just because his degree is, you know, from a um, diploma mill. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think his own work speaks for himself or for itself that he doesn't know what he's talking about on a lot of issues. But, uh, yeah, the point being that he doesn't even have really have any room to talk about credentials or other people's lack thereof because he himself is sort of lacking in that area. Yeah, so um, I think I think what you said there is key is credentials themselves. You know, it, it, it kind of indicate uh, someone's commitment to a field, but you really need to judge them based on what what they've actually produced, what kind of work they've produced, the quality of that work, how sound those arguments are, uh, what 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 do they say? What are their arguments? And then you could engage in their arguments. D yeah. You, yeah. Yeah, no, I got that. I was, I was actually trying to look up a quote here, but I think I can say it from memory. Um, I think it uh, was from Tim McGrew, and he said that uh, an advanced degree is indirect evidence that you know what you're talking about. It's helpful as far as it goes, uh, but indirect evidence must give way in the face of direct evidence. Show me that you uh, know what you're talking about, and I don't care whether you have a degree. Show me that you don't know what you're talking about, and I don't care whether you have a degree. And I think you know the point there was it's always uh, it's always got to be determined ultimately by does the person show knowledge of the field in which they're speaking, not you know necessarily do they have an advanced degree in that field because, as you said. Um, you know, degrees, some people can get them, and it's just it's evident that they, they probably shouldn't have them. And especially so in the case of a, you know, a very general, like, just like a general liberal arts degree or something like that. 
Uh, Brandon says you got Dillard credentials. Yeah, I absolutely. Do. And so guess what that means? It means he's got a lot of time. You, every week you're posting a different stack of books you're reading. And so uh, James White doesn't follow your Facebook account, but he'll pr he'd probably see all these books that somehow you can afford and somehow you're reading every single week with all this free time that apparently exists somewhere on this earth. So I, I would put your knowledge of random obscure philosophers well above James White or James White normal listeners. I just, I just, just based on what I see you post on a weekly basis. <laughs> well, James White also and his group tend to be very um, demeaning, I guess, towards the field of philosophy. Like they don't, they don't like it. And it's ironic because so many of their beliefs are very philosophical. And that's not a bad thing, right? We all have philosophical beliefs, even if, you know, they're implicit, we're not, you know, consciously aware of them. We all have them. Uh, so I think it's just kind of, it's kind of funny when people like James White want to belittle people who are interested in philosophy or read philosophy and then act like they don't do it. But like, when you do exegesis, sorry, you're doing philosophy. There's just yeah. no way around it. The funniest part of the William Lane Craig uh, debate with him was what he's when James White's like, oh, I'm just reading the Bible. And and William Lane Craig's like, your evidence fits my belief system, too. You, you have a, just a different philosophy and the evidence fits both of ours. And then he got like real mad about that. He's like, and he's, get, he's getting laughed at by William Lane Craig on the Internet. It, it warmed my heart. It was so funny. I was just dying. But yeah. I did make a video because uh, the problems that we're talking about now with credentialism, it, it's not just a problem with with theology. It's problematic across the board in the sciences. I don't know if you've ever seen me talk to my, my uh, PhD brother about credentialism and about the state of science and about the state of education, but there, there's a lot of systematic problems. And so I, I kind of got a video, video compilation of various, various fields. And uh, I'm, we're going to start with something called um, the replication crisis and uh, p-hacking and why most, most published studies are wrong. Have you ever heard of this? Or have you ever heard anything like that? Uh, I've heard that generally it's an issue in some fields, although the, the specific terminology you're bringing up there is not ringing any bells. All right, so I'm going to hit play, and it's probably not going to go where we left off, so it's probably going to restart the intro. So I'll just hit play, and we'll see how this works. Imagine uh -oh. you're a researcher in a oh, field where there are a thousand hypotheses currently being investigated. Let's assume that 10% of them reflect true relationships and the rest are false, but no one, of course, knows which are which. That's the whole point of doing the research. Now, assuming the experiments are pretty well designed, they should correctly identify around, say, 80 of the 100 true relationships. This is known as a statistical power of 80%. So 20 results are false negatives. Perhaps the sample size was too small or the measurements were not sensitive enough. Now consider that from those 900 false hypotheses using a p-value of 0.05, 45 false hypotheses will be incorrectly considered true. As for the rest, they will be correctly identified as false, but most journals rarely publish null results. They make up just 10 to 30% of papers, depending on the field. Which means that the papers that eventually get published will include 80 true positive results, 45 false positive results, and maybe 20 true negative results. Nearly a third of published results will be wrong even with the system working normally. 
Things get even worse if studies are underpowered, and analysis shows they typically are, if there is a higher ratio of false to true hypotheses being tested, or if the researchers are biased. All of this was pointed out in a 2005 paper entitled, Why Most Published Research is False. So right here, we already have a crisis in science, is that peer-reviewed studies, studies that are, are published, and you, you, you see the news headlines all the time, like, oh, coffee uh, dehydrates you. And uh, remember back in the day where they're pushing the food pyramid and, and carbohydrates needs to be the base of our nutrition. Like these types of things are not really true. Like uh, it, it turns out years later that the whole food pyramid is, is completely bogus. And it turns out uh, that uh, coffee doesn't actually dehydrate you. A lot of these studies get pushed out in the field that are actually false because of just the way science publishes papers, the peer review process works. Yeah, and I think that there's also something to it that there, uh, kind of when you're in a field of study, then there's, I guess, uh, a motivation to discover something that's new and different. And so that can, you know, get people barking up the wrong tree, as it were, because they just want to discover something that's new and different. And, you know, sometimes their, uh, I guess, their drive can get in the way of their uh, scholarship or their research. And so they'll, you know, publish something prematurely. And so that's why, you know, you'll later find out that, oh yeah, that, that was bogus. I, I think I do have a clip. I think on the next clip I have is that guy talking about that very subject. So let's, let's see what he says. Scientists there. have huge incentives to publish papers. In fact, their careers depend on it. As one scientist, Brian Nosek puts it, there is no cost to getting things wrong. The cost is not getting them published. Journals are far more likely to publish results that reach statistical significance. So if a method of data analysis results in a p-value less than 0.05, then you're likely to go with that method. Publications also more likely if the result is novel and unexpected. This encourages researchers to investigate more and more unlikely hypotheses, which further decreases the ratio of true to spurious relationships that are tested. Now what about replication? Isn't science meant to self-correct by having other scientists replicate the findings of an initial discovery? In theory, yes, but in practice, it's more complicated. Like, take the precognition study from the start of this video. Three researchers attempted to replicate one of those experiments, and what did they find? Well, surprise, surprise, the hit rate they obtained was not significantly different from chance. When they tried to publish their findings in the same journal as the original paper, they were rejected. The reason? The journal refuses to publish replication studies. So if you're a scientist, the successful strategy is clear. Don't even attempt replication studies because few journals will publish them. And there is a very good chance that your results won't be statistically significant anyway. In which case, instead of being able to convince colleagues of the lack of reproducibility of an effect, you will be accused of just not doing it right. So a far better approach is to test novel and unexpected hypotheses and then p-hack your way to a statistically significant result. So p-hacking is uh, the idea that when you're testing something out, uh, you're, you're testing not only one hypothesis, but a bunch of them. So the, the example he gives is uh, if eating chocolate while you're on a diet leads to extra weight loss or better sleep or lower cholesterol. And so the more things you're testing for, the more likely you're going to get a significant result. So you're p-hacking it. It's not your 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 error probability is not supposed to be meant for testing multiple hypotheses, and that value itself is arbitrary to begin with. So there's a lot of systematically 
corrupt things when it comes to studies and then the studies that get published. And he's, he talks quite a lot about uh, incentivization. People are incentivized to put out things, even if those things are wrong, and not correct those things. They, they, they live or die based on it. Uh, uh, entire organizations live and die based on funding. Maybe they're a climate change organization working for the government, and their budget's directly linked to how alarmist uh, the population is about climate studies. Uh, people have ulterior motives. Yeah, there's some people who are, are working on on uh, purely altruistic grounds. And there's some people who think that they're not being motivated by money. But a lot of times, these types of things seep into the science, where the science is not pure, even if even if it's let's say a government employee. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, kind of the, the file drawer effect that goes on, you know, where the I guess uh, whatever whatever's in line with the uh, current trend, that's what gets pushed, and then whatever contradicts that, it get, tends to just get filed away. Yeah. So David points out secondhand smoke. I, I wrote an article on smoking ban because uh, when I was in college, that was their big push in the '90s and the early 2000s was to ban smoking, and so you saw this this coordinated public campaign against smokers. But if you pulled up the data, the cancer rates, that was the, one of their big selling points is like, uh, you're going to get cancer if you smoke. But if you poke, pulled up the, the, the statistics from Greece, they had higher smoking rates in the U.S., but lower, lower cancer rates. And the CDC, of course, said, oh, yeah, that's because they eat healthier. Well, why isn't that your solution for Americans? Just eat healthier. Why are you saying let's ban this? Why, why, aren't, we, why aren't we proactively telling people to go on a diet uh, eat more fruits, eat more vegetables, walk places, don't don't ride cars everywhere, get out and be active. That that could do quite a quite a it could go pretty far in reducing our death rates. But you don't you don't see the CDC doing that. Yeah, it, yeah. It's like uh, COVID. One of the primary comorbidity is being overweight, but you don't see the CDC and people promoting healthy lifestyles. Working out, uh, getting your getting your life together, uh, not drinking soda every day. I got I got a pop here. Not drinking soda every day, uh, working out and just cardio. You don't you don't see them doing that. You, you so, ever notice how the messages like get crossed sometimes too? You know, because you you, you, know, you you have on the one hand, like for example, saying that people who are uh, you know, obese or overweight, these people are the ones who are more susceptible to COVID. But at the same time, they're basically like have a whole like uh, fat acceptance movement, you know, or tell people they're just fine and don't don't judge them for being overweight and stuff. It's, just, it's interesting how like the messages sometimes just contradict each other. I, I really I really feel like it, the rise of fat acceptance also uh, was correlated to the decline in smoking. Because smoking is an appetite suppressant, and so you're telling all these people not to smoke, and then people are getting fatter, and then you're saying, you're basically saying, oh, you're not smoking, that's good, you're getting fat, yeah, that's okay, something like that. that that's what it feels like happened happen in American society during my time in college and then, then thereafter. Right. So I'm going to keep hitting play. Our next clip is going to be a Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan's interviewing uh, Lindsey James, and Lin Lindsey James and a couple of, of his friends uh, decided to write a bunch of fake papers for peer review publication, a whole bunch of them. 
and they got a ton of them published. So let, let's listen to them talk about that. Let's explain what you guys did. Yeah. yeah, so we started about a year, I guess a year and a half ago now, it was last summer. We started writing a bunch of academic papers for the journals that represent these fields. And so everybody understands what an academic paper is getting out of the gate. This isn't like an op-ed that you dash off for like Washington Post or some magazine or whatever. This is a thing like academics work their careers to write one or two of these a year. Yeah. And so they're really hard to write. They're supposed to be hard to get published. So we wrote 20 of them in 10 months. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, seven of those got accepted. Four were actually published. And... Um, then we got at busted. least four more. Yeah, we got busted, and yeah. at least four more were on track. Maybe five or six more would have gotten in. What's the difference between getting accepted and getting published? So the process with everything in academia is really slow, and a lot of people don't know this. So you send off this article, the editor looks at it, and the editor either gives it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. If they give it the thumbs up, it goes off to peer reviewers, and that process takes months. Mm -hmm. uh, often as long as – I mean, we had one paper that was eight months under peer review. So the reviewers look at it. They try to figure out if the arguments are good. They try to figure out if the research is good. They evaluate that. They give extensive comments. They send it back to you. Then you have to revise it according to whatever they say. Make it better is what's supposed to happen. They made ours crazier. And so then <laughs> yeah, they did every single time. We took the feedback and made the papers just the most extreme thing. Most but... extreme things. And so then you send them back. So now you're probably three, four months in just the review process, not to the writing, which should also take months. Yeah. And then the editor will either send it back to the reviewers to see if it was good enough, or they'll just evaluate it themselves, depending on where it stands. And then they'll make a decision as to whether or not to accept right. it or reject it or ask for more revisions. And then when they accept it, that means the journal is ready to publish it. But then the publishing process requires all the typesetting, proofing, nice. all the stuff that goes into making it professional for an academic journal. And, and that can take months. And, and, and publishing is the coin of the realm. Like, that's it. So the ideal is one paper every year in the humanities broadly. So if you – that's how you credential yourself. That's how you get tenure, which is a job for life. That's how you get to teach people these ideas who then, as you said, go out into the workforce, you know, five, six years later and – in, infect everybody with total silliness. So the, it's the gold standard peer review. So we saw a tremendous problem. And so the, here's these guys just writing fake peer reviewed papers with crazy ideas just getting published left and right. And uh, it feels to me like the lowest IQ people on the internet are the ones who are always demanding a peer review paper for everything. You got a peer review paper for that as if the peer review is some sort of magic process that eliminates all bias and actually gives us a gold standard of truth. There is a video that I forgot to splice in where it's an actual scientist in the field and he's doing field work as he's talking about the peer review process, complaining about millennials who, who, who demand peer review. I forgot to splice that into this video, but it's pretty interesting. So peer review papers, are you a big advocate after I've been condemning them? <laughs> um, I think that, you know, the peer review process is helpful. So I think what we see in there is that it's helpful, but not perfect, right? So they had, I think you said 20 of these papers, right? And so of these 20 papers that should not have gotten published, right? Four got through. So we see that, you know, there is, it, it helps weed out some of the craziness, but obviously it's not perfect. So 
uh, I think we would have to be, you know, obviously it's got to be determined by the content of the paper. It's not just like it's peer reviewed. So it's right. Um, what that means is that, okay, we, there's been a vetting process. We've weeded out some of the craziness, but obviously weird stuff gets through because it's not a perfect process. Yeah. They actually talk about this. Uh, Greg says, who are these guys? This is James Lindsay and he's on the Joe Rogan podcast. I think all I did was uh, Google James Lindsay dog paper on YouTube and you could get that clip. Um, but but they, they were talking about the process and originally when they started the project, their papers, none of them were going through. They had to actually uh, add all sorts of craziness and actually the, all, all these papers that they're submitting are about social justice in, in the social realm. And that, that was their intent to expose this particular field of science as being bunk. And so they had to just talk to the narrative, talk about privilege and and uh, uh, just just dive in. And those were the papers that started getting accepted. They started learning the process. They just had to dive into the social justice craziness head first, just go for it. And then, then they started getting accepted. Yeah. And uh, like I said, it probably, uh, it depends on the field to some extent. So in social justice, it, it doesn't surprise me that you could get some crazier stuff in. I think in maybe some more rigorous fields, it would be more difficult to do that. But I think what it does show again, is that a peer review process is, is certainly not perfect. It doesn't mean that what's being said is true or it's, you know, genuinely good research. <laughs> a provisionist says, uh, I'm so glad Fisher doesn't have the steam yard link anymore. It probably will come back. It's, this is a month on this, uh, on this non, non, uh, free version. So we'll see how that works out, but let's see what our next clip is. I'm trying to remember. Uh, oh, I, it's probably just, this is Arnold clean. So Arnold clean is the economist. Uh, we talked already about social science. We talked about just normal statistic papers. This is a post by Arnold Klein, Economist, 2007, where he talks about the problem of uh, intellectual inbreeding within the economics departments. He says, at the very top departments, more than 90% of economists come from the worldwide top 35 departments. The top is almost entirely self-regenerating. So th this, this is a problem because what this means is that is that uh, the economics field is very self-selecting. It, it, it doesn't have the wide diversity of thought that we'd hope it would have. And he talks about this down here where the number of PhDs in economics is outnumbering the number of positions available in econ departments. And these econ departments are being staffed by the top PhD programs in these top departments. And so it's all inbreeding. It's, it's all... Uh, the same type of thought that's being propagated. And so you're going to find people like the Austrians. I, there was a news article. It's like, who saw this inflation coming? The U.S. is maybe at 10% inflation. The official numbers are about 7. House prices are about 30. I just ran a inflation calculator on the Coke. The Coke's doing pretty good. So if uh, the Coke came, well, kept up with the official price calculator, it'd be 70 cents a can, but it's still around 30. So that's good. But our houses are up 30%. And uh, uh, so there's massive inflation. And all these experts have been been informing uh, Joe Biden, the Biden administration, the Trump administration, saying, you're not going to have these negative consequences. Go ahead and print whatever dollars. And all the Austrian economists 
and uh, the Chicago School, they understand printing money causes inflation. And that, that's who saw this, normal, rational economists who are not in this hegemony of thought, uh, these PhD departments going out and propagating this nonsense that inflation is not going to happen if you just wildly print money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Go ahead, Chris. Oh, no. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about economics, but that, that was... Uh, so my, my credentials is in college, I was a double major political science and computer science and math and econ minors. Uh, but I'm going to tell you right now that my degree in computer science did not teach me anything new about computer science that I didn't know before. It literally was credentialism. Uh, things that I had taught myself were reinforced at this class. Of course, it, it exposed me to Java before before uh, college, uh, I only did C, C++, uh, Visual Basics, Pascal, and I think one more type of language. But it did expose me to Java, but basically all the concepts were the same, and I didn't really learn anything new. A political science taught me a couple interesting things, but most of my political science knowledge came from before the credentials. The credentials really didn't add anything to my knowledge set because my knowledge set was self-created. It's already pretty thorough before I went into these programs. Yeah, and I mean, a dedicated student, you know, um, can, I think, learn a lot through their own studies. Like, I mean, if, considering my own studies, right, I think I honestly learned more just through, you know, <laughs> reading books on my own time than I have ever learned in a classroom. Uh, the advantage, I guess, I see in uh, a degree program is, I guess, that sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And so if uh, our, you know, if your instructor, your, uh, what's the word, advisor, your dissertation advisor, they will know the territory better. So if you're like missing something, they can point you towards it. So I think that's the key advantage I would see in that. But honestly, you can get that through, you can get like just by having informed people around you, they can point out your own blind spots to you without necessarily having to, um, you know, have gone through the academic process. So, uh, yeah, the idea that you have to go through that in order to, you know, know a field well, I think that's certainly incorrect. Yeah, Greg is pointing out a huge problem with the, with the economics field. He says, I know a guy that has a master in econ. He's never heard of the Austrian School of Economics. I was talking to a guy with a degree. It was like a bachelor's or a master's from George Mason University. And he was literally arguing to me that inflation, but printing money doesn't cause inflation if it's get if it's put in, let's say, a luxury market. It's like, who taught you that? What who whoever did should be fired. Your degree should be revoked. Everything you're saying is just absolute nonsense. And this guy's a guy with with real degrees from George Mason University. I, 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 I'm assuming he's not lying to me. Maybe he's just lying to me. But the idea that you could just print money and not cause inflation without uh, subsequently burning the same amount of money somewhere is just absolutely ridiculous to me. Maybe he got his degree from the same place as James White, really. <laughs> Maybe. All right, so uh, I think our next our thing is another image still. So I'll just kind of zoom forward. See how far it goes. Oh, this, this is about, I was reading American Spartan, and American Spartan is about a major during the Afghan war who lived a warrior lifestyle. He fought for the, for, for the sake of fighting, and uh, it talks very in detail about the entire Afghan ordeal. 
And this paragraph that I pulled out is about General Petraeus. Uh, the United States had 20 years in Afghanistan. We had the brightest minds in military. We had the brightest minds in, in government. We had all these advisors. We had all these uh, government organizations and NGOs, non-governmental organizations, flying into uh, Afghanistan, trying to remake Afghanistan, trying to change that population into a functioning democracy. 20 years later, we pull out, and a week later, the Taliban's in control, and everything's back to normal like it was before we even got there. One week to undo 20 years of our work. We had the brightest minds uh, working at this. So just because people have experience in government, just because people have degrees like General Petraeus, just because uh, people have experience in diplomacy and working with other people, doesn't mean that they know what they're doing. A lot of it is trial and error. A lot of it is misunderstanding human nature. I think we get that a lot. People, people like to see other people as malleable. You, all you have to do is flip the right switches, and then you can force anyone into any mold you want. That's just not how people work. People are stubborn. People don't want to change. Uh, people have ingrained ideas that you're not going to dislodge. Um, foreign nation building is extremely hard with a group of people who are culturally culturally diametrically opposed to what America is, trying to turn them into a functioning democracy is not going to work. It, it just it was a failed a failed attempt from the start that these these people with the right degrees, with the right credentials, they try to do this 20 years later. How many lives are gone because of this? Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for, uh, you know, the different types of tasks that uh, are out there, right? So there are some issues where, you know, being book smart, you know, in kind of like a classroom setting, that's, you know, that's a good type of education to have for, you know, whatever the task might be, uh, you know, but be that education, you know, philosophy, maybe one of the more, you know, armchair sorts of uh sciences if you want to call them that but when yeah you're talking about something like uh developing a country or something like that uh, or agriculture like there's a lot more hands-on uh experience that people need there and so being book smart doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be capable for doing some of the more practical things and so i think that that's an important uh point to keep in mind as well yeah absolutely uh the, the major that they're talking about here, he was able to build rapport with the locals because he, he really was a warrior and it's a warrior culture. And through his actions, he is able to inspire their loyalty and and as a proxy, loyalty to the U.S. among these, I think it was the Shi, some Shiite tribes that he was working with. I think the Sunnis were by and large the insurrectionists and then you had some Shiite. It, it's a huge mess. The Afghan situation, a huge mess. Um, I don't envy any of these people. Uh, but our next example is going to come from Bob Enyart. And uh, of course, Bob Enyart's a young earth creationist. And uh, this is going to be when he, I know you're not a young earth creationist, that that was one of the views that you changed on at some point in your life. If, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I would be an old earth creationist. So I yeah. still I still reject the theory of evolution, but uh, yeah, I would hold to an old earth. Yeah, but this is going to be a clip. This is him talking to Jack Horner. Now, Jack Horner is the individual who Jurassic Park, that was based off him, that main character with the hat. Um, that character was based off of Jack Horner. And of course, they found soft dinosaur tissue and he called him up and he offers him $20,000 
to carbon date this dinosaur tissue. And what happens is pretty surprising that uh, this guy would say this publicly, but he, he says he basically says, and we'll hear him say it, that he refuses to carbon date it because it will give ammunition to the creationists. That's the reason he turned down $20,000. And I went, I told, the, I, I was arguing with an evolutionist about this, uh, about evolution. I'm like, these, these people are not, they're, they're pundits. They're, they're just as human as you or I. They're, they're people. And as for an example, Bob Enyard offered $20,000 grant, free money, to carbon date this dinosaur tissue. And they refused it on the grounds that it would give creationist ammunition. And he, he just denied that this happened. He just said, that never happened. You're making it up. It's like the, the audio's out, the phone call's out there. No one's denying this, but you have a worldview in which this has to be the case because in your worldview, science is pure. People don't have ideology. People are not ideological motivated and everyone's in it to try to get the most pure data and scientific results. That's just not the case. There, there's, there's a lot of politics that go into science. So I'll just hit play. I wonder how long that's going to go. Uh. A test like this would just. Okay, so here we go. Just add a, another bit of scientific information that that you would have at your disposal. And also in that grant letter, we asked if it could be a blind test with five different specimens. And therefore, then the museum could test four other specimens that you might want to have carbon-14 dated and so you could put it all in the same batch and those testing then will pay the cost of that that'll be free to the museum plus the ten thousand dollar grant um let, let me let me tell you where i'm coming from here sure all right obviously your group is a group of creationists yes and and um, and the spin they can get off of it, right? Doing it is well, not going to help. Not going to help us. Yeah. So even though it's just a scientific test, they're they're not well, asking it's, for it's voodoo not a, or anything. It's not actually a scientific test. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Carbon fourteen dating something with soft tissue in it. <laughs> Jack, if I could raise twenty thousand dollars, would it be worth? I will talk to Mary Schweitzer about it. Okay. okay. I appreciate that. And how about this? I'll resend you the grant letter with the amount of 20000 in it. And then you could talk to Mary and we'll see where it goes. I, I want to know what group is sponsoring it. Okay. Mm -hmm. it's, um, I, I, I mean, I need, I need some really specific details about... Sure. And don't... Just, you know, tell it to me straight. Of okay? course. And so here you have an individual. He doesn't think it's a scientific test, not because he denies carbon-14 dating, but because he believes that the carbon-14 dating results is not going to give them any useful information because, of course, in his mind, the specimen is going to be well over 100,000 years old, which um, that, that's, it, that's where he's starting. Bob Enyart's cont contention is that the specimen is under 100,000 years old. And so the carbon-14 carbon dating will give some sort of results. 
Yeah, uh, and though I'm not a young Earth creationist, I you know I'm not hostile to the movement, and so I do think that you know there are some interesting arguments in favor of young Earth creationism, uh, and that it should be discussed. And uh, so I wouldn't be the guy to say that you know there's no evidence for it. Uh, I would just say I think that uh, the total weight of evidence reigns against it. But yes, in this kind of case where it seems like you've got people trying to not to do scientific research because they don't like where it could go. That's definitely like an unacceptable uh, and even even dishonest uh, way of conducting oneself. Yeah, so this this guy's the gold standard of archaeology. That He's the gold standard. Uh, he's got Hollywood movies about him. And this is his level of anti-science, we'll say. He, he, he has some personal biases that are fairly evident and he'd readily admit to them uh, in, a, in a phone conversation. So it is interesting. Uh, the interesting thing is that the creationists did get a hold of dinosaur bones. Not all, not all dinosaur bones are fossilized. They did do the carbon dating, and then they presented those results. The, the bones were dating more like 40,000 years, which that they shouldn't have any carbon in them. If they're, un, if they're over 100,000 years, it should be undetectable. Uh, but not contamination because the results are fairly consistent no matter where you're testing a bone. So if it's going to be contamination, it would be like pockets of carbon here, pockets of carbon there. It wouldn't be a consistent carbon. Uh, so they presented, there. there's a group that presented these findings and then got kicked out of a conference. I got the audio where Bob Enyard's talking to one of these carbon-14 experts talking about the dinosaur bone dating and getting kicked out of a conference because not because they, they found anything wrong with what they're presenting, but because they didn't like the implications. Yeah. But um, just for the sake of the audience, this was a presentation at a geophysical conference in Singapore last summer, and they did carbon dating on the bones of 10 dinosaurs from around the world, different respected labs, and they found significant quantities of radiocarbon that is carbon-14, which should only last thousands of years, not millions. And this is a significant find, and it seems to be a consistent find. That's correct. And the people who ran the conference took it out of the schedule after it had been presented because they said there's something wrong with the data. Mm -hmm. Even though they didn't know what it was that was wrong, mm -hmm. or in fact, if anything was wrong, but it just conflicted with their view of how old things should be. And so obviously it had to be wrong because it had the wrong perspective. Mm -hmm. But of course, if the question is, well, what perspective should we choose? Then ruling it out of court to begin with is an improper procedure. And this was a conference sponsored in part by the American Geophysical Union. And from a, another interview I did with one of these scientists on this team, the president of the AGU went to the hotel room of one of the presenters at a different conference in San Francisco and basically sat and received the presentation privately. You know, the data, what they've done here is they removed it from the program rather than attempt to respond to the data. That's correct. All right. Now, to move on, the point that you make that since carbon-14 is everywhere, it can't be an anomaly you know, at a certain point, this is a massive anomaly or it actually starts becoming expected and then you have to explain it not as just something weird, but as something that challenges your theory. And I think it's starting to get to the point where that's what's going on. 
which is, of course, I think why the people who ran the American Geophysical Union meeting decided to take it out of the meeting, because it's easier not to deal with it if it's not officially true. But this is an important point, that peer-reviewed literature is not always quite what it's cracked up to be, because there's a filter in the way. And so he's talking again about peer review literature. A lot of times, you know, sometimes the organization has no choice but to censor because if you platform a divergent view, it looks like it's endorsement of it and individuals will try to cancel you for that platforming. I don't know if you've noticed this in the modern world that there's, there's a thing called cancel culture and they'll try to destroy you even if you just take a picture with the wrong individual. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the thing about peer review is this is, you know, a review by other people, right, who have their own particular views on things. And so if you're kind of it's one reason it's kind of hard to um, get unpopular views uh, put forward because uh, it's hard to get people to approve that. It's hard to get peers to approve that the people who are doing the reviewing, if they're already hostile to the idea that's being put forward. So, uh, like I said, I think peer review, it's helpful as a filter, but again, it's not infallible because like, like any filter, even a peer review filter can get clogged. Yeah. So I think my last example is going to be in the field of archeology. span and uh, it might be a little bit longer of a clip. Um, and so people like... This is an interview with uh, uh, Stone Age herbalist and Bronze Age perverts, of course, the, the most scientific of names. Um, but they're talking about the state of archaeology and the revolutionary field of genetics, how genetics is revolutionizing archaeology in a way that academia does not like to, this, to such an extent that people are disclaiming their own papers, they're pulling their names off of papers that might give the non-politically correct uh, view about uh, population genetics. And so- Casino had this idea that the, the Indo-European- So he's gonna start with this individual named Casino, which was the traditional view, and he's gonna uh, kind of explain it, but the idea is that most of culture can be explained by vast movements of civilization and conquest that the, the pots stick with the people. And that was replaced with this idea in archeology span that pots just kind of uh, migrate out. People are like, Oh, that's a cool pot. And then they start making that pot rather than migrating with a forceful militaristic society. But genetic studies are showing that there have been huge population replacements and this this casino guy was actually correct in his original hypothesis all right did it stop on me indo-european languages spread through migration and through invasion Yes. Um, and that you could you could trace this through the material culture that the Indo-Europeans had moved from one place into another and had come to dominate Europe, which is why we all speak Indo-European languages. Um, and this was basically the case up until the post-war era when you had a total rejection of this this premise and and this wasn't just oh we don't like this theory this was everything about culture history from the ground 
from the ground up was dismantled and rejected. The idea that um, that material culture could be bound to one place in time, that it could be specifically tied to one group of people. Um, and so far, it went so far as to basically reject that migrations and invasions were ever really a historical force. So if you if you look at sort of 1960s archaeologists, they basically dismiss the idea of invasions and migrations altogether. Um, so if you if you've ever taken an undergraduate course in archaeology, you often get this refrain: pots are not people. Pots are not yes. people. So if you get pots in one place, it doesn't mean that people brought them. Pots are just uh, you know they have a life force of their own and they <laughs> they diffuse outwards. You know they just um, they just magically appear. Yeah, any pause like that, I'm well, fast-forwarding Well, let's, let's take it back, I suppose. We fast-forward to, yeah, the development of population genetics. And that has really, I mean, this is why I called my, my article kind of broken open. It's really just blown apart this consensus. It, it, it's very interesting, the reaction. So if you, if you dive into, the, say, the Hark paper, um, you have geneticists like David Reich. Um, and they were... Even before the paper was published, you had three or four of their co-authors um, remove their names from the paper and say they wanted nothing to do with, with this paper because, and they specifically cited Cusina as the culture theorist, they specifically said, if we publish this, we are validating these older theories and we can't do that. So he had to write, I think it was a 120-page um, appendix to attach to the paper, basically saying that he he wasn't defending Casino's position, and that's that's about I don't know ten times longer than the actual paper itself. Yeah. Um, um, but nonetheless, you still have so you had so many archaeologists absolutely terrified by these by this kind of um, this reemergence, um, and one paper actually called it Casino's smile as yeah. the the revenge of Casino. Not really. I mean, you you have to attach a, a confessional saying that you don't approve of certain uses of these ideas. So yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely you know it's in that ballpark. Um, but it got it gets more insane because you have these have these papers and they've started to come out thick and fast now about um, how um, there needs to be a clampdown on commercial genetics testing. Um, on how we should stop publishing things like eye color and skin color in papers, um, that we don't, we shouldn't be doing that anymore because it's it's fueling um, the the wrong type of interest in their papers. Um, uh, and so this is just I, I see I see <laughs> I see a great clampdown or I see an attempt at a clampdown coming on genetics where you have people saying, um, you know, you can't list ethnicity. Um, of of the participants for instance which will it won't just neuter it it will that will just abolish the idea of population genetics and so the, the point of pulling all this up is all these fields are highly politicized you have massive biases it, it in in uh, genetics they don't like racists racists are the really the people who are very interested in genetic studies and so you have all these scientists and they're like uh-oh the people who really love my stuff are all these racist people. And so like all their papers have to like decry racism and they, then they have to dance around that because because they don't like the implications of their own work. And so all these fields that we talked about 
economics, uh, biology, archaeology, even just just normal data, just the way the data is presented with the p-values and p-hacking, all of it has systematic corruption and problems with it. And so I think the smarter attitude is be able to do your own research, be able to crunch your own data, be able to understand numbers, be able to understand statistical anomalies, what statistics actually mean and how people use statistics in bad ways. I, I read Tammy Bruce's book. I don't know if you know who Tammy Bruce is, but she was a feminist back in like the 80s. Um, but she she was uh, giving like domestic violence against women. And she was listening to one of her own advertisements on the radio where they, they came on and they said, oh, uh, women, or men account for two thirds of domestic violence uh, recipients or something like that. And she was she was very mad in the way the data was presented. So she called up the radio station and said, no, you need to say that one third of all domestic abuse is against women because it makes women the victim rather than men, just in the way the data is presented. Because, of course, she had an agenda and her agenda is women need to be the victim. We need to feel sympathy for women. It doesn't matter if men make up the majority of domestic violence or the majority of rape as it is in this country with prison stats and so it's all about manipulation there's there's all these biases there's all these these internal conflicts there's there's just systematic corruption in the data and so i think what you wrote originally on your page is incredibly insightful we need to start doing research for ourselves we need to dive into if you're doing theology dive into the masters dive into the original works of the church fathers dive into ancient Near East literature if you care about their worldviews and how they see things. Dive into Second Temple literature or maybe even uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, all the, the non-canonical literature to kind of understand the worldview at those times. Just don't take someone's word for it. Or, or if you do, trust but verify. It, is that your idea? Trust but verify? Yeah, I, I said in the post, right, that obviously we can't we can't master everything, right? There's a lot of evidence out there. You got to pick and choose your own fields. Um, so, I mean, relying on experts, there's places where you have to do it. It's generally better to rely on experts than, you know, disreputable people uh, because there is some kind of a vetting process, but it's an imperfect vetting process. And so, yes, you know, it's better if possible where you can be your own scholar, do your own research for yourself. Uh, that's really the only way to have kind of the close link to the truth, which I would hope that we would all want. And so, yeah, that was that was the heart of the post. Yeah. So Patrick writes a question. He says, I don't understand why this pot idea is such a big deal. Why are people mostly invested in how a pot got somewhere? It's, it's just like IQ studies. People don't like IQ studies because it gives us some sort of metric where we could say one person is better than another. Again, I don't think so. A high IQ person is just as valuable as a low IQ person. Uh, they're, they're both unique imagers of God. They both have individual value. But people, people intuitively see someone with a higher IQ as being better of a person. And so with these cultures, if one culture is dominant and goes in and sweeps out another culture, if the Aryans come in from the, the, the steps uh, the steps of Europe and sweep through Europe and conquer everyone, then you could, if you're ranking cultures, ranking civilizations, you could say, 
oh, they're objectively better than the people they conquered. Um, case in point, they conquered them and replaced them. And so people don't like this hierarchy, any hierarchies in which you can say one group of people is better than another. Again, all of that is subjective. I don't. I personally don't think the culture who could kill the most of the other culture is the superior culture. I, I don't think that's a good metric, but some people do. And the people who really hate this idea of cultural migration, uh, those, those people do value those things. They think in those terms. Yeah, it's important, of course, you know, remember that everyone is distinct, right? There are differences among people. And unfortunately, people will try to, you know, seize upon that to try to say that some people are better than others. And the fact of the matter is we're better than other people at some things and they are better than us in other areas. And so, you know, we're all valuable because God has made us that way. Um, but, you know, we have different talents and stuff. It's important to acknowledge that. But again, like you said, keep things in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, imagers of God are valuable, whether or not they have someone with Down syndrome is a valuable human being. Um, they're precious in God's eyes, and they have intrinsic internal value. And so I absolutely endorse those ideas. But what we do see in, in scholarly circles is this credentialism not bearing what the culture thinks of it. Like uh, if you go talk to your random person, you pull them out at the mall and say, hey, this PhD guy said this, they'll probably be like, oh, he's got a PhD. He's pretty smart. So I, I guess I guess that sounds about right. They put a lot of stock in someone's credentials. Someone gets up to tell you all about COVID on TV. Oh, he's got a doctor before his name. Uh, what he says must be true regardless of the data, even if it contradicts what he said one week ago. Yeah, yeah. Credentials are not uh, are not a sign of infallibility by any means. And so arguments need to be evaluated not based on who's saying the argument, but based on the internal structure of the argument, the syntax of the argument, the the evidence for that argument. James White just giving a mo that we were just on that thread. We were just on that thread where some guy said that James White refuted you, and when a Calvinist says that. Uh, James White or another Calvinist has refuted someone, what they really mean is James White or whatever Calvinist read the argument and just gave a monologue that was like a paragraph. Um, that That's what it means. It, it doesn't mean that he actually dived into your argument and, and took apart your argument and showed why you're wrong and another person's right. They just, they have talking points. And as long as they feel that they've hit their talking point, they think that they've refuted someone. Yeah, I mean, this has been like the substance of James White's response, right? It's like he'll play part of like the review of the book, right? And like someone will mispronounce a name and he'll harp on that and say, yeah, that discredits us and how we don't mean anything. And he'll just ignore the complete argument that we were making because, you know, a name got mispronounced. And it's like, that's not refuting someone. That's like, that's, that's called um, uh, bringing up a red herring, you know, bringing up something that's irrelevant so that you can like go after that and it doesn't even you know address the argument which is why i said no james white has not refuted me he's basically ignored the real argument yeah so like uh for example my isaiah 40 through 48 debate i was debating a calvinist very nice guy uh Dan daniel madden and I, I was talking about yeah in in the text god is counting it says god counts the waters in his hands and uh his response was 
no, God doesn't actually count. He's just the measure by which all things um, are created or so. It's like you're just you didn't you didn't say why why that text can't be what I just said. You just built a different narrative about the text. What within the context of those verses makes you believe that Isaiah has your ideas in mind? There's there's nothing there about like God being this. It was it is a talking point to this weird narrative about the verse without actually addressing why what I said was false. It's like if they present a counter narrative, then apparently my narrative is to be rejected and theirs is the true one. And theirs is so anti-intuitive. It's just like, what are you? I no nobody, nobody would read this text and come to your conclusion about what's going on here. That that's where, where are you getting this? Yeah, I remember. I think I, I think I, Hosted. I was one of the co-hosts of that debate, if I remember correctly. Uh, did, did we pause there for a second? <clears throat> yeah, we? but uh, but I thought that was really funny. Uh, so he's like, "Yeah, Isaiah has a secret narrative." Well, he, of course, Isaiah throughout Isaiah forty through forty-eight. Isaiah is just like, yep, God teaches, God learns, God reacts to new events, God listens to prayers, God gets angry and frustrated. Yep, Isaiah writes all that, but he secretly had in mind, uh, secretly had in mind this this dualistic thing where he's he's talking in baby talk for us, and uh, all all his Calvinist metaphysics were still intact. I'm like, I I don't I, that's not that's not in the text anywhere. It's I I guess you could say that, but it's just. This is just not, you're just talking about the text. I don't I don't see anywhere that it shows it's true. Just talking about something does not mean you addressed it or proved your assertions. Yeah. A, cl a claim is a claim is not evidence. Right. What can be uh, asserted without evidence can be rejected without evidence. Yeah, Patrick says this. I've noticed this. I w I want to discuss a point with Calvinists. They say X and I present a counter argument and they say X again like their assertion is just self-evident. Or and so a quote They'll quote a famous Calvinist in support of it, like that's proof of it. It's like, have you ever heard of A.W. Pink? Let me give you one of his rambling sermons with just allusions Spurgeon. to the Spurgeon. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's like I don't, I don't care about what Spurgeon said. Well, who, why, why am I putting any stock in this guy? Is what he says accurate? Maybe, maybe. I, I feel like internally, this is what convinced them of Calvinism, mm -hmm. and so they think it's, it's going to work on you. It's like. Yeah. I read Spurgeon and look look at the structure that he, he said this in. Isn't that pretty nice? Isn't that ah? <laughs> uh, but no. Oh, okay. Uh, I guess we could close about there. We're just over an hour, and uh, I thank you for joining me. Do you have any closing thoughts or closing words for the audience? No, no, no. Just want to say thanks again for having me on. Uh, appreciate appreciate the perspective that you have over here, and keep up the good work. Yeah, thank you. I think uh, I th all the examples I grabbed today was just what I thought between when you posted this eight hours ago and like right before the podcast. And so there's many more examples of corruption in science. This, these are just the ones that were on the top of my head that I, I could uh, rally up in, in like one day. But there are more. Um, people are fallible. People are humans. People have biases. People have agendas. When people are talking to you, just you got to wonder what are they trying to do? What's their goal here? What do they gain? What are they trying to prove? Where are they coming from? What's at stake? If Jack Horner came out as a creationist, he'd lose his entire job. He'd lose everything. Um, he probably has a pretty good incentive not to be a creationist. Maybe just 
Not saying creationism is correct, but he probably has a very strong social incentive to continue on with what he's doing. James White as well. James White would lose absolutely everything if he came out as not a Calvinist. He changed his mind, became an Arminian. He'd go broke. No one would listen to him anymore. Uh, he's burned all his bridges too, so it can't be like one of those conversion things where it's like, I was a former Calvinist. Oh, he's burned all his bridges. I, it would not... There's a lot of social pressure. Yeah, and I think just besides, beyond, you know, obviously like social and financial things, I think just James White's ego would just never let him admit that he was wrong about, I mean, I've never heard him admit to be wrong about like a little <laughs> thing. He's not going to admit that he's wrong about like the foundation of his entire career. Yeah, that's a debate tactic. Never give an inch on any issue ever. And that's one thing he does, and it's one thing in his debate with John Sanders. John Sanders gives inches everywhere. John Sanders is like, yeah, that could be true. It could be this as well. He thinks he's in a normal discussion. He's not in a normal discussion. You're not You're not interacting with someone who wants to think things out with you. You're in a discussion with a rabid wolf who wants to destroy you at all costs. You're, you're not there for the same reason. And that's why James White, you know, likes James White is good, like I said, at debate and at rhetoric. That's why he likes the live debates and that's what he pushes for. Because the man is not, you know, engaging with like the best defenders of open theism or the best defenders of Arminianism in the literature. He doesn't go there. He tries to keep things in because uh, he'll get eaten alive if he tries to, you know, actually engage these people in writing, which is what, you know, the scholars are used to doing. Uh, if he he just wants to get them to where he can like basically roll over them by you know using his personality there and i think that that's I mean, it's not wrong to play to your strengths but it's just pretty obvious that that's what he's doing yeah absolutely all right well thanks for joining me and uh thanks everyone in the comments if you have any further comments or questions put that down below or start a thread in the god is open facebook page uh thank you for listening